you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll get there in a few minutes. Um, maybe about three months ago or so, uh, on a Sunday late afternoon, uh, Jeff Griffin and I, Jeff who's on uh, acoustic guitar today, Jeff Griffin and I got together just to hang out on a Sunday afternoon, catch up, and, um, and as, uh, as often happens, I started kind of rambling about our church, um, talking about kind of our church and what God was doing in our community, and... Um, and, uh, and, I, and I, was, I was talking to, to Jeff about th- this question that's kind of, um, especially about three months ago, it was kind of always, always on my mind. And the question went something like this. Uh, what, is, what is the one thing that our church will be known for? What is the one thing that our church will be known for that will provoke sort of questions from our family members, our friends, neighbors, where we can only respond by talking about the gospel? What is the thing that our church will be known for? What is the visible thing that our church will be known for that will be completely ununderstandable unless somebody encounters the gospel? That's this question that had just kind of been eaten away at me. And, and, um, and I think the reason that this question felt so important, so powerful, is that, uh, as we talked about last week, our church has a story to tell. We have a really, really good story to tell. We have the truest story to tell. We, we, we have the story, the true story of God bringing heaven to earth. We have the story of God's love for those who rejected his rule and his reign. God's love for those of us who became enslaved and captured by our own attempts to rule ourselves. We have the true story of God's Son bringing God's perfect rule of heaven to earth. We're a people who has the story, the true story, of Jesus on the cross exhausting the powers of sin, death, and evil, and then rising victoriously over them. This is the story that we have to tell. We we tell the story, the true story, of the triumphant Son of God ascending to his throne in heaven and then sending the Holy Spirit of the living God to empower his people to be his presence, advancing the kingdom of God, living at the dangerous and beautiful intersection of heaven and earth. We're a people who has the true story of a God who doesn't just rescue us from something, but as in the beginning, partners with us to care for, to steward, to govern God's creation. We have this story, and those of us who are Christians would say, this isn't just a good story, this isn't just an interesting story. We would say, this is the the, the truest story that there is. And so because of this, this, this question comes up for me. What will we be known for as a church that will allow us to tell that story? What will people see in us, observe in us, hear in us, that will provoke them to ask questions? where we have to explain that story. This is what God is doing. And the only way that I know how to answer that question, what is the thing, what is the thing that we will be known for? The only way I know how to answer that question is with this phrase that we've been using, reconciled community. If we can be this reconciled community, this people, if we can live this way, 
as this kind of hodgepodge, eclectic, very different sort of people in the midst of a very segregated world. If we can live lives of humility with each other and forgiveness with each other, this, I believe, is what allows us to tell this story. And Jeff, I don't know if you remember, but after I was done rambling for a very long time about this, um, Jeff said, why? Why is that the one thing? Why is community, why is reconciled community, why is that the thing that we need to be known for that will allow us then to tell this story? Just maybe a simple question, but Jeff has this way of asking seemingly simple questions that are really complicated, actually. And so it's made me think about why. why. Why is it that I'm convinced that being this reconciled community, why, why is it that being this authentic community, as we say in our mission statement, why is that the thing for us? And I think, I think my answer is just this. Reconciled community is the entry point to our Christian faith. It's the starting point. And not only that, not only is it the starting point, but without reconciled community, there is no Christian faith. It's the entry point and it is who we are. And so my goal this morning, and hold me to this, my goal this morning is to show that reconciled community is the starting point of our faith and our very identity. Does that make sense? Okay, let me pray. And so, Holy Spirit, give us wisdom now as we open your scriptures. We're told every single week who we are. We need you to tell us now who we are. We're told every single week what our priorities are, what we need to spend our time on, what we need to spend our money, our resources on. I want you, please now, living God, to tell us who we are. To tell us how to spend the time, the energy, the resources that you've entrusted us with. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so to get at this... Um, to get at why I think reconciled community is the entry point and the identity, we need to uh, uh, look at a kind of uninteresting uh, Greek word, koinonia. Um, anybody familiar with that word? Put your hand up. Okay, so maybe, okay, good. Like half of us have heard that word koinonia before. Thank you to Brent for putting up the pronunciation up there. I wouldn't have thought that, but that was a good idea. Koinonia is this Greek word. Now, this was a pretty common word for, for Greeks and Romans in Jesus' day when the New Testament was being written. This a very common word. So common, in fact, that it was overused. It, was, it became one of those words that you could apply to a lot of different things. Basically, the word meant having something in common with someone. Can you see how that would be used in a lot of different situations? Having something in common with someone. That was koinonia. So you could use it to refer to your marriage or to a friendship, maybe a business partnership, and on and on and on. Right? It's a pretty squishy word. It could be used a lot. And you see up there the translations of this word in, in our Bible, words like partnership, sharing, or say that last one with me, fellowship. Now some of you, as soon as you hear that word fellowship, you know exactly how like, the ancient Greeks felt about the word koinonia. 
this overused, not really helpful word. Anybody? Anybody grow up in a church where you always talked about fellowship for everything? <laughs> right? So my church had a fellowship hall. Anybody have a fellowship hall? Yeah, Josh? Um, our, our fellowship hall was just like the dingy basement where we sent the youth, you know? I don't know why. Don't, there's nothing fellowshipy about it, but we called it that. Maybe you had fellowship dinners in your church. Or how about this? Like, pretty much every week in the bulletin, there was some event that was going to have food, fun, and, say it with me, fellowship. So, 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 so we can maybe relate a little bit to these Greeks, right, where this word is just kind of applied willy-nilly all kinds of different places, and it doesn't really mean anything. This is what koinonia was, but it's a word that we find used in the New Testament repeatedly, and it's a word that we need to understand it, that we need to see how the biblical writers use it if we're going to understand what kind of community that we're called to. Our trouble with this word fellowship, though, is not just that it's an overused word for some of us. Our troubles go much, much deeper if we're going to understand the importance and poignancy of this word in the New Testament. I was reading uh, some sociologists this week talking about kind of American culture and um, sort of the, the state of community life in American culture. And, and there are some sociologists who will say that for at least two generations, most Americans have lived in a state of, quote, perpetual homelessness. They're not talking about a, 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 a literal homelessness, right? Not, not having a roof over your head. They're talking about a homelessness as it relates to community, relationships. So, so, so not just, you know, the generation that we're currently in, but the generation before that, too, like my parents' generation. Sociologists will say that, that given sort of the dynamics in our country, at least two generations have lived in this state of perpetual homelessness. Why? People will point to things like the hectic pace of American life, um, a transient lifestyle, moving around a lot, a rapid technological change, loss of tradition. Um, what else? Loss of tradition, uh, disconnected to shared history. And so all these things lead uh, many of us, most of us, to live as uh, displaced people, a people outside of kind of a specific place, a specific time, a specific people. Uh, Bridget O'Kane and I were talking about this this week, and um, we were talking about community life in our church, and she said, you know, this is really the first time in human history where people have lived this way, right? Like for most of human history, you just, wherever you were born, that's where you lived. <laughs> it's where you died, Right? The people who you were born near, that was just your people. That was your community. You didn't have really a choice. You didn't really have an option. So really kind of for the first time in human history, we're sort of living in this different sort of way as displaced people oftentimes experiencing this sense of uh, perpetual homelessness. So what does that mean? It means that you and I relate to each other very differently than, say, our great-great-grandparents would have related with each other. When we introduce ourselves to each other, when we try to meet each other, establish relationship with each other, we're doing it in a very different way than our ancestors would have done it. So there's a a sociologist uh, by the name of Anthony Giddens, and he describes this dynamic as pure relationships, pure relationships. And what he means by that is that we attempt to establish relationships unencumbered by any sense of shared history, tradition, place, memory, culture. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right? So it's like if Mitchell and I are just meeting each other, we have nothing that we know of in common. We share no common structure, no common history, no common memory. 
So we're looking for things to relate to. Things that might kind of hold some sort of a interest, a common interest. And maybe this is something like the, the Greeks in Koinonia sharing something in common with someone. This is how we think about community, I would say now. We think of community, again, kind of unencumbered by this memory, like shared culture, by shared tradition. And so now it's like, Jody, what do, you, do we have anything in common? What do we have in common? Nothing? Zero? We're both white men, so that's probably not enough. But we look for that, right? Like we look for something. We like the same kind of movies or read the same kind of books. We're in the same life stage. So we, 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 we interact with each other in, this, in these, these, these quote-unquote pure relationships, which maybe there's some upsides to that, right? Like there's some autonomy there that maybe wasn't available in the past. There's some independence there. So I don't want to just kind of like completely say this is a, a bad thing, but you can probably tell where I'm going that I do think there's a lot of issues, problems uh, with this. So let me tell you, uh, a, cu- a couple ways that I think I, I've observed this playing out. See if this uh, resonates with you or not. Uh, this way of trying to do community in, in this sort of sense of, of pure relationships, trying to find things in common with each other. One of, one of the ways that I, one of the repercussions of this is kind of the, um, the heightened importance of branding in our, in our society. Um, I, I'm trying not to offend any of like the marketing people in our church. Um, but see, brands, as I understand them, brands are no longer uh, uh, just to help us differentiate between different products, right? Like, am I going to buy a Sony or a whatever the alternative is? A what? A Panasonic, right? It's not just like me to understand the differences between these two, but there's actually a sense of identification with the brand. And marketers are great at this, right? They know that we exist sort of in the state of perpetual homelessness, that we live as displaced people. And so the, the, the advertisements are kind of, they, they tap into this, right? So I grew up in a Pepsi family. You know what I, like, great, right, yes, yeah, someone said boo, right? You know what I'm talking about, because you grew up in a Coke family, right? We could probably have like a, like a debate right now between Coke families and Pepsi families. Like, that's so weird, right? But man, our family, we were Pepsi people. Don't be bringing any Coke products into our house. I don't know why. We just were. And when I was in, in high school playing basketball, was, you were either a Reebok man or you were a Nike man. I don't think, is that even a thing now, Lamar? It's just Nike? Is it like, it's just Nike, right? Gone, long time ago, right? At my age. But like, I remember, like a freshman on the basketball team, like I had to decide, am I a Reebok man or am I a Nike man? I went Nike. And I couldn't afford, you know, because I had to pay for my own shoes. I couldn't afford, like, the Air Jordans. It was like they were putting air in basketball shoes for the first time. And I was like, wow, it's amazing. I couldn't afford the air. So I just got, like, regular just Nike high tops. So at least I was in the, the club, the tribe. I think the, the most ingenious example of this lately that we've seen is I'm a, I'm a Mac. I'm a PC. I mean, it's just blatant, Right? Like, I am this thing. Who are you? Who do you identify with? And of course, we knew, you know, who we were supposed to identify by those commercials, right? So I see this playing out in, like, really funny sorts of ways. Like, when, when somebody switches brands, like, if you're, a, if you're a Mac person 
and you buy a non-Mac computer product, you have to sort of make this public confession, right? You have to justify yourself. You have to explain the backstory, why you're making this move. If you were an iPhone person and now you're going to an Android platform, like, you have to like, confess to the world why you're doing this. You know what I'm talking about, don't you, right? Why? Marketers know we need to belong to something. We need to belong to a tribe, to a people. And we don't. We don't have that. We, we exist kind of in a state of limbo, looking for relationships without any memory, without any structure. And they get that. Here, here's, the, here's the other example, I, the way I see this playing out, is that ours is a generation that is absolutely commitment-phobic. We're scared of making commitment. Uh, and, and it makes sense to me. Like my great-grandparents, your great-grandparents, they just, they were born and they did their thing. And they were committed to it. They had structures around them that kind of told them this is what it means to live in this place in this way. We don't have that. It's completely up to us to make the quote-unquote right decision. Right? We exist outside of that tradition, that culture, that structure, that memory. It's just Me. So is this the right job? Is this the right neighborhood? Is this the right relationship? And it's, I got to get it right. And I'm the only one who can get it right. So we're commitment-phobic people. This leads to a, a, a culture of leaving. Of leaving. Of people who are present and then are not because of a better job came up, or a better relationship came up, or a more interesting neighborhood came up. I mean, there are some of you who have lived in this city for years, but it's still not your city. There's still the possibility of moving somewhere else sometime. I was joking with Lamar about this earlier this morning. Um, a great, I, I, an example of this kind of culture of leaving of commitment phobia to me was when LeBron... LeBron James decided to leave Cleveland. You remember that? To call, it caused this big, like, it's not even a press conference. It was like a, what was it? An ESPN special, a media event, right? All to tell us, I'm leaving. I'm leaving Cleveland and going to Miami. I'm taking my talents to South Beach, right? And man, he caught some flack for that, right? But who among us wouldn't have done the same thing? Chance to make more money? What was keeping him there? What would have kept us there? His leaving makes perfect sense kind of in the culture that we live in, the way our society works. Of course, yeah, why would you stay? So this is the air that we breathe. This is kind of the way our world works. The reality is that that does not stop when we walk in the door on Sunday. 
When we gather together as God's people, when we seek out to live God's mission, God's calling, God's identity in our lives, all of that stuff does not, we don't just like shed that at the door and become people who are great with commitment. We bring all of that with us. And so we seek to build community as people who have really known what it is to be perpetually displaced. So community for us becomes looking for something in common with other people. And, and, and for some of us, we thought that that's enough, right? Like we, we have Jesus in common. So that's enough, right? Oh. Sharing the same beliefs or the same or the same values, the same principles are not enough. You've experienced this. So we bring this into church with us. So the, so the authors of the New Testament have to take this koinonia word and they have to redefine it. They have to infuse it with meaning. Remember, this is kind of an unhelpful word. It's been overused. But it's the word that, they, uh, that, they, that they, they choose to use to describe what it means to belong to God's people now. But they have to redefine They have to infuse it with new meaning. You see, the reality is that God did not send his son to do battle with your enemies, to liberate you from sin, death, and evil so that you and I could haphazardly and temporarily associate ourselves with some people, we happen to believe the same things. God didn't rescue us so that we could be church shoppers, community hoppers. Amen? It's bigger than that. So, 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 so what do they do? The first thing that they do, that they describe uh, koinonia, they describe fellowship as a relationship with God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Paul's writing to this early church, this is kind of the introduction to his letter, and he says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship, into koinonia with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm going to leave that passage up there, Renee. I don't, I don't know if this is true, but I think it is. Um, when we think of salvation, and that's a word that, that we Christians, we, we use, salvation, God has saved us. It's a good word. When we think about, when we picture, when we imagine salvation, I think most of the times we think about being saved from something. So you can imagine somebody who's at sea who's drowning, Right? They're drowning into the sea. The sea is going to consume them. And then the Coast Guard helicopter flies out, drops a rope, and, and rescues them, saves them from the ocean, right? They're saved from something. But if they just leave that sucker hanging on the, on the line, dangling, is that salvation? No. No, that's something else. That's mean, <laughs> In order for that person to be saved, he has to be saved from something and into something else. 
That's salvation. So he has to be rescued into the helicopter, or they have to fly him over to a little lifeboat and drop him in the lifeboat, or fly him onto dry land, and now that person is saved. Saved from something, and saved into something. If you're with us this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, that's probably a word you've heard a lot, salvation. Try, try to hear what I'm saying now, that when we say this word, we don't just mean a rescue from something, a rescue from our, our, our alienation from God, our distance from God, a rescue from the kind of the powers, that, that, the oppressive powers in this world. We're talking about a salvation into something. Into what? What does the passage say? God is faithful who has called you into what? Partnership, fellowship, koinonia. The salvation is into fellowship with God. Just dangling on the end of the line, having been rescued from something, we are saved into something, into fellowship, koinonia with God. Clearly, then, this is not fellowship that can be defined by sharing something in common with someone. What do you share in common with the preeminent Son of God? Not much. This is how we tend to think about fellowship, how we think about community. What do we share in common with each other? But the way that the Paul is using this word is very different. Koinonia, fellowship, is something different. We're rescued into, we're into this fellowship with God. So here, koinonia, fellowship, is an objective reality. Say objective reality. Koinonia, fellowship, is an objective reality. It is something that exists outside of ourselves. Koinonia with God doesn't exist because you showed up to God and said, look what I have to contribute. Look what we share in common. We should, you know, be in fellowship together. Fellowship, koinonia with God exists because of what God accomplished in Jesus on the cross. Amen? So this thing exists outside of ourselves that we are rescued into. Fellowship, koinonia, intimacy with God is something that objectively is true. Not because we bring something to the table, but because of our invitation into it. I think this is where we reach the end of our words. Trying to describe koinonia with God, fellowship with God. How do we put language to union with God, with communion with God? How do we describe that? This is why we need those of you who are artists in our church. The church over the centuries has always looked to the poets and the dancers and the painters and the artists to help us understand what this means. To be invited, called, caught up into this koinonia, this fellowship with the God of the universe. It's a concept that we can't wrap our minds around. I can't take you bullet point by bullet point and get you to totally get what that is. It's kind of a mystical thing that God has done. Our old lives have been put to death. Our new lives are resurrected in Christ. 
When we are saved, when we are rescued, this is why this is why this is the entry point to the Christian life. We are rescued, we are saved into union, communion, fellowship with God. It exists not because we bring something to the table, but because of what God has done for us. Again, if you're not a Christian this morning, this is what salvation is. Salvation is God rescuing us from ourselves from the oppressive powers of this world, from sin, from separation from God, and into, into fellowship, koinonia, intimacy with God. Amen? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, for one, it means that there is no shame or guilt. Being in fellowship with a father means that shame or guilt have no more claim on our lives. So Paul can say, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Caught up into fellowship, into koinonia, into communion, into union with Christ Jesus. This is our identity now. In Christ Jesus. And so some of you walked in today defined by shame, by guilt. No more. You are in Christ Jesus. You know fellowship with the God of this universe. You are filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God. The Son of God calls you friend. So shame and guilt have no more definition in your life. Did you sin this week? Yes. Will you sin today? Yes, you will. But this is no longer what defines our lives. The results of that shame and guilt haunting us is not what defines our lives anymore. Instead, we have access to immediate forgiveness, grace, mercy in, in, in Christ Jesus. Some of you walked in with this mm today. We need to let it go. Because God has already let it go. God looks at you, sees the child of God who created in the image of God, who is held by the Son of God. There is no shame. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The other thing that Paul tells us in our passage is that as a result of our fellowship with God, we lack nothing for this life. Therefore, he says in verse 7, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Some of you are going to wake up tomorrow morning facing Monday and it's, you're going to feel like you're starting from a deficit, from scarcity, from not enough. Because of our union with Christ, because of our fellowship with God, you lack nothing. Nothing. There is nothing for what you are going to face the rest of today, tomorrow, the next day that you do not already possess in Christ. Okay, I can't tell if you all believe me or not this morning. But it's not just that you have enough to, to make it. It's not, that, it's not that God has given you enough to barely make it by, to scrape by. 
You've been given everything. Everything that you need to participate on the very ragged edge of God bringing heaven to earth. In other words, you've been given enough not to just huddle in the corner and wait until Jesus comes back to wait till everything kind of gets better in your life. You've been given everything you need to participate with God in what God is doing in this world. Amen? That's what you've been given. So in the New Testament, we're told we're not orphans. We need to just hope that we're going to get enough. We've been adopted as God's children's heirs with Christ Jesus. You've been given everything you need to fully participate in what God is doing in this world to bring heaven to earth. You lack nothing for that. Not to build your own kingdom, not to just make it by, not to hope that you make it through another day. You've been given everything you need to live in that place. The very edge of God bringing heaven to earth. Which is a scary place, it's a vulnerable place, it's a beautiful place, it's a holy place. We've been given everything for that life. Why? Because we have been saved into fellowship, koinonia with God. Worship team, go ahead and come come back on up, please. All right, so how am I doing with my goal? My goal, remember this morning, my goal is to show that reconciled community is the starting point of our faith and our identity as Christians. See, if I stopped right now, if I stop right now, we could walk away with this idea that this koinonia, this fellowship, it's just like this kind of private thing. Right? Like I can just sort of have this mystical devotional experience of me and Jesus, right? But how then, how then would people look at our church and say, tell us the story of what God is doing in the world? If we were just kind of having these individual, private experiences with God. So there's something else here. There's an outflowing of this koinonia, of this fellowship that must become visible. So the New Testament writers, they use this word, yes, to describe our fellowship with God, but they just as much use it to describe our relationship with each other. Fellowship, koinonia with one another. So John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, and then again in Acts chapter 2. John writes that we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship, koinonia, with us. And our fellowship, our koinonia, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, John is proclaiming to this new church, look, you are in fellowship with us now. Why? Because we together are in fellowship and koinonia with the Father. And then in Acts chapter 2, one of the first glimpses of the church after Jesus ascends, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayer. These people who had been alienated from each other now together in fellowship and koinonia with each other. So this word is used in these two different ways. One to talk about what God has done, what we've been invited to, fellowship with our God, and then to describe the new relationship that we are in with each other. That we are in fellowship, we are in koinonia with one another. The person sitting next to you, with the people in this room. There is not one without the other. We cannot claim to have fellowship with the Father and yet exist as isolated people. 
not participating in the community life of God's called together people. There's not one without the other. When we say yes to Jesus, when we are rescued, saved into fellowship with the Father, we are also then introduced into fellowship with one another. It's both. It's both. So there's this quote I want to put up here from a woman named Teresa Latini. Um, and, she, and she writes this about this topic. She says, we belong to the communion of saints objectively in Christ. That's what I was saying earlier. It's not because of what we bring to the table. It's because of what a God has accomplished for us. We belong to the communion of saints objectively. We cannot separate ourselves from Christ or one another. We cannot faithfully depart from the church to pursue our own individual Christianity. If we do, we contradict our identity. What she is saying here is so countercultural for most of us in this room. I mean, think about this for a minute. If, if I'm right, and most of us have kind of existed in this state of perpetual homelessness as displaced people, as if most of us think about community and kind of like these pure relationships where we're trying to find something in common with each other, then what she's saying here makes no sense. Because what she's saying here is that our identity is as koinonia with each other, fellowship with That is not something we choose. It's not a voluntary association. It's who we are. Don't ever use the phrase church shopping with me. I'm going to kick you in the shins if you you say that. Because that language is so contrary to a biblical understanding of who the people of God are. It's not something we shop for. It's not something we choose. It's not something we jump around. It's our very identity. This is, this is why, this is why for us, for our church, this reconciling community is the thing. Because it is the entry point. We are saved into fellowship with the Father and fellowship with one another. And it's our identity. It's who we are. And as uncomfortable as that is for us to put on, as abnormal as that feels for us, it's still true. It's still true. Whether you've experienced it, whether you like this idea or not, it doesn't really matter. This is who we are. We are the koinonia of God. We are the people of God. We are the body of Christ. That's just an objective reality, as she says. The question is just whether we live into it or not. The question is just whether we stick around long enough to see God do this work in us. The question is just whether we are being slowly converted out of a world that says you're known by your brand or a world that says you can hop around and leave to being here present as the people of God. That's the question. Our identity is secure. Our identity is written down eternally. We are in fellowship with God fellowship with one another will we live into it maybe like two years ago John when did we go down when did we, when did we go on our Sankofa trip it's like two years ago two years ago John, uh, John and I went on this bus trip 
Um, there's a, a picture, I think, somewhere. Just right below there. Yep. And um, it's a good picture of you, John. Don't worry. I'm not putting an embarrassing picture of you up here. So John and I went on this bus trip and um, down through kind of these different civil rights uh, monuments in the South. And, uh, and one of these monuments was at a place called Selma. And it's not working. Okay. And that's uh, okay. It's not that impressive of a picture. Um, John and I standing in front of a sign that says Selma. You can picture that. Except that we're both very sleep deprived and haven't bathed in about three days. Because um, this, this, we're on this bus for three days. You're going through these different uh, monuments, um, seeing kind of where the civil rights movement was birthed and how it played out. Um, but, but, but one of the things that was really fascinating to me is we came to this, to this Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. And, and this, this is the bridge where, where Bloody Sunday happened. Does anybody remember hearing about Bloody Sunday? Yes? Good, good, good. Um, so, so, so Bloody Sunday is the day when, uh, in March of 1965 where um, civil rights protesters are going to march from Selma to Montgomery uh, to, 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 to protest the lack of protection that people registering to vote have been getting, uh, to protest the, the ongoing uh, racial segregation in Selma, but also in the entire state. And, uh, and as they cross the bridge, they're met by the police force, but not just the police force. That, that morning, the sheriff had, had, had put out a call to all the white men in the city to come to the police station. He deputized all the white men in the city. And so, and so the, the protesters are, are met by just this massive group of people some of, some, of, some of the policemen are on horses. There's dogs. Um, and the lead protester kind of comes to the police officer and asking if they can pass by peacefully. And then just kind of all hell breaks loose. And tear gas is shot at the protesters. And the dogs are, are, are attacking people. Um, the horses are trampling down on people. And all this is caught on, on television. It kind of shocks the nation. Um, but but the, the thing is that a few days later, they tried again. And they were stopped. It wasn't as violent this time. And then a few days later, they tried again. And this time, they passed through and finished their march. And that was pretty dramatic. And John and I kind of walked across this bridge with some other people and trying our best to put ourselves in the shoes in that day. But what was, for me, even more captivating, more so than just the marchers, was the question of, of, of why, why could they do that? You know, why could they face serious injury, death, not once, not twice, but three times? And, and I think many times I've, I've, when I think about the civil rights movement, I think about like really good leaders like Martin Luther King, Reverend Shuttlesworth, Rosa Parks, other of these kind of like seminal figures. But what John and I uh, encountered on this trip was the fact that, that much of the organization for this movement happened in the church. So we visited different churches and we heard people tell stories about what it was like to be in these congregations during this time. And so yes, there was great leadership, but the question of how it is that they could time after time after time face incredible insult, injury, the possibility of death. Had to do not just with good leadership, had to do with their identity, who they, who they were. 
And these, these, were, these were Christian people who were, who were convinced to their bones that God didn't just save them from something, but God saved them into fellowship, koinonia, right? So that it didn't matter what anybody else said about who they were, about what their value or their worth was. They knew that they had an identity that was secure because of what God had done for them. It could not be taken away from them, no matter what anybody said, no matter what any law said. They knew who they were. They had been rescued, saved into Koinonia with the Father and with each other. So there was this deep, deep community that could not be torn apart, that could not be shaken because they knew that they shared the same identity together. They didn't show up on a Sunday morning looking for ways to associate with each other, trying to build community. They knew who they were. They knew that in Christ they shared the same identity, and so it could not be torn apart. And so time and time and time again they could face death bringing heaven to earth because they knew fellowship with the Father and with each other. Our world needs that church to be present today. I don't know if you watched the news this week. Wednesday, first time in a year that Chicago went 24 hours without a murder. And that was good news. Some of you saw the teenager getting beaten at the Bridgeport High School. It brought back memories of another teenager two years ago being beaten and killed. Our city, our world needs us to be the church. We don't do what we do because it's just fun to do this. We don't come together and worship and open the scriptures and pray because that's, you know, what we're supposed to do. We are who we are because this is who we are. This is what God has accomplished for us. We are in fellowship, in intimacy, in communion, in union with God. And because of that, it's true for us as well. Our world doesn't need any more insular churches. Our world doesn't need any more churches where people kind of associate together because, yeah, we all kind of are the same sorts of people. We like the same sorts of things. We're the same age. We, all, we don't need that. Our city, our church, our city, our world, our neighborhoods needs us to simply live into who we already are. We are the people of God. You have an identity that can never be taken away from you, and it's an identity that works itself out in the reconciled community. So I'll just end by saying this. Um, we don't do community for the sake of doing community. We don't call ourselves to be community because that'll make us feel good or we will have accomplished something then. We do it because this is how God is bringing heaven to earth. We do this because this is always how God has advanced God's mission in the world, has been through God's people, always. And so we care so deeply about this. This is the one thing for us, not because we just want to be together, not just because we want to 
create something out of nothing. We do this because this is how God is accomplishing God's purposes in the world. It's through God's people. So we're not doing the holy huddle. We're not a Christian clique. We're living into our identity because this is how God is saving the world. And so I asked this last week. I'm going to ask it today again. Are you Are you in? Are you here? Are you present? I asked last week, are we willing to lean into the struggle together? Are you here? Not, do you have any doubts? Not, do you have everything figured out perfectly? Not, are you in a stage of life where, you know, you, you, you never have any distractions? No. Are you present? Are you willing Are you willing to live into this identity together as God's people for the good of the world? Because that's what we need from you. We don't need you to be perfect. We don't need you to be super Christian. We don't need you to act like everything's good all the time. Good Lord, please don't do that. We need you to be present. To be present to what God is doing, to who God is calling us to be. We need you to be present to living together into the people who God has already made us. So let's pray. God, thank you for uh, an identity that transcends our interests, an identity that transcends um, ourselves. Thank you for, for rescuing us not from something, but rescuing us into this eternal, beautiful relationship with you where our lives are healed, our lives are restored, we come to know who we really are. Oh, when I preach this sermon, when I, when I try to get my mind around these words, I'm aware of just, for me, how, um, how poorly this fits. Very used to living in certain ways in the world, interacting with people in certain ways, keeping my, my commitment to myself, keeping my options open. So God, this life that you've called us to, this identity that you've given us, it it doesn't seem like it fits naturally on us. And so we need you, Lord Jesus, to please, 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 please be transforming us into your people. Please be giving us dreams and visions of what this life looks like. Please be converting us away from our selfishness, from our individualism our privacy. Please be inviting us in to a community that is deep, that is imperfect, that can be tiring, that can be confusing, a community that knows how to have conflict, how to forgive, a community that doesn't exist for itself but for your purposes in the world community that understands that one day we will come to an end as you will come back. Community that understands that for now, this is where heaven and earth intersect. We need you to transform us into this sort of a people. So I pray today for those individuals who are having a really hard time believing that they are so loved that you are inviting them into this fellowship with you. Pray that they would hear from you again today. They're created in your image. 
you have given everything for them. That every obstacle, every bit of rebellion, every bit of sin has been conquered by your son. I pray that there would be restored relationships with you today, reclaimed relationships with you today, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to you again today, that we could somehow begin to embrace this fellowship that we have with the very God of the universe. God, once again, we hold our hands open. This church is yours. We are your people. Make us into who you want to be, God. God's created you to be, that what God is doing in your life deeply, deeply matters. Not because of what you do, not because of what you associate yourself with, but because you know fellowship with the Father and because you know fellowship with one another. Your life matters. And I don't mean that in like a spiritual way to make you feel better about yourself walking out into a hard week. I mean that it matters because God is choosing to bring heaven to earth through you. God is advancing God's mission through you. Your life really, really matters. What you do with your life this week deeply, deeply matters. How you choose to spend your time, your energy, your resources, your money this week deeply matters. The way that you contribute to the life of this community deeply matters. This is how God is working in the world through you. So live this week as if your life matters. As if everything in your life matters. Live your life this week as if heaven is actually coming to earth, as if God's rule and reign is actually being known through God's people. Whether you're at home with kids or at an office job that you don't like or working your dream job or stuck on a block with people who you don't really like or in a marriage that is hard or beautiful, live your life as if heaven is coming to earth whether you have a ton of doubts, questions, fears, insecurities, or whether today, for whatever reason, you feel like you've got it all together, live your life as if it really matters, because it does. So God sent us out now as your people, as your people, as your people, not as a collection of individuals who happen to get together because we share a few beliefs, but because we together belong to you. Because we together expect that you are coming that you are ruling, that you are reigning in the midst of our weak, broken, foolish, confused lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, when, the, when the big hand gets to 12, we're going to start our meeting, uh, our congregational meeting. So please stick around for that. If you know anything about the stage, 
please get up and help these guys clean everything up, do as much as they can in about 10 minutes, and then we're going to start. Members, members, please stick around. Everybody else, uh, you're invited to stick around. If you want some prayer after this service, you can just hang around up front. There'll be someone who can pray for you. Otherwise, go in peace. We'll see you in 10 minutes.